Dotnet Rocks episode 634 with guests Andrew Parson and Alfred Thompson. Recorded live Wednesday, February 2nd, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here's Carl and Richard. Thanks very much. It's Carl Franklin coming to you from a very snowy, icy, treacherous New London, Connecticut, halfway between Boston and New York. And I only, I, I'm only glad that I don't live inland because it's even worse. Oh, I saw some photos from Chicago. Oh, the, all the airports are closed. It's just a mess. Well, just a highway with abandoned cars, and the cars are going to be buried in snowdrifts momentarily. Like, it's, it's amazing. And here's the thing that really bugs me. Normally, when I see a car broken down by the side of the road, which I did this morning on the way to the studio, I would pull over and stop. However, in my Prius, I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to start up again. Right. Because the thing just, you know, is not made for snow. Those wheels are a bit small. For yeah, the, it, it's not of... just the wheels. It's There's no differential because right. it's electric. The yeah, torque yeah. all comes from the electric motor. So if it has resistance, it just stops or else it will burn out the motor. So here's a tip for you people who live in the Northeast or in Arctic conditions. Want to buy a Prius? Mm, don't. <laughs> yeah. And then here in the Pacific Northwest where our weather is very mild, we've been keeping our mouths shut. Yeah. Just not going to talk about not it. Not going to talk fine. about it. Not going to talk about that. Well, let's get right into Better Know Framework. Sick of people hearing me complain about the weather. It's Snowmageddon, baby. Snowmageddon. All right, what do you got? I love that phrase, Snowmageddon. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, any catastrophe, just put Mageddon after yeah. it, and it's great. Snowpocalypse. Snowpocalypse. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I've been doing tips recently on the show. Yes. Uh, because there's a lot of them, and you know, sometimes after a while, you get past the level of usefulness when you're mm-hmm. talking about classes, uh, because some of them are just not, let's face it, exciting. Right. So this is a good tip that I found. Um, you've got a Silverlight application, and you want to load it up. Of course, you press F5 in Visual Studio and run it. And the wrong browser comes up. Let's right. say IE is your default browser, but you really want to see it in Chrome or in Firefox. Okay. So how do you do that? Well, you right-click in the Solution Explorer on the ASPX page that hosts your Silverlight app, mm-hmm. which is in your web application portion of that solution. And you select uh, Browse With dot, dot, dot. And a little box pops up. You see your browser, you pick it, and there's a button that says Set Default. Nice. There you go. It's just done. And that's not default for your system. That's just default for that project. Or I think it's for Visual Studio, actually. Oh, okay. So you're not actually messing with the file associations. Yeah, you're not exactly. It's not a Windows thing. That's good. All right. I like that. There you go. Very clever. Hey, uh, is somebody complaining or praising? No complaints here. I've got an email from uh, Hilton Gies now. In, in Hilton, we've talked to oh, before, yeah. lots of emails exchanging, but he had a, a couple interesting points here. He's our that South I African to friend. Bring up to you. Uh, hi, Richard and Carl. I hope you're doing well. Long time. Uh, I was listening to a recent show, 602 with Steve Evans, and you guys were talking about cloud computing, especially comparing Amazon to the Azure services. Here's a couple of bits of information you and the listeners might find interesting. 
First, you spoke a lot about the lock-in with Azure because you can't move off of Microsoft's infrastructure. However, Microsoft have for a while been planning to offer Azure in a box, so to speak, by partnering with hardware manufacturers. This means you can take your Azure cloud and move it to another Azure provider or even internally. Wow. Now, uh, we've since this email is a couple months old now, and uh, since then we've learned more about Azure in a box. And when you say box, we mean about a seven foot tall, two foot by two foot, 1,000 pound box. <laughs> yeah. It's not a little box. This is not home server that runs Azure. That's right. This is not going to be shipped to a PO box. Right. But uh, it is something that an ISP could run yep. or a lar you know, a company with a large data center might run so that there will be alternatives to only running on Microsoft's cloud. Right. Which, which is good. I totally agree. That's interesting to see and uh, looking forward to it. Uh, his other point was Amazon recently announced that they were going to offer a mini cloud for a year for free, Linux only, but a way to get started. And I think subsequent to that, I think Microsoft's going somewhere along the same line. It is going to make some that I see both companies are trying to find a way to create a lower entry point for some folks. Right. Well, they got to admit still like the $10 website. It's hard to touch that. I don't even know if those guys would want those customers. True. You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, all good stuff. And Hilton, maybe I just got a soft spot for sending the mug to South Africa, but that's what I'm going to do. And uh, if you've got questions, concerns, ideas, uh, want to tell us about a show or just uh, some great projects you've built or some better ideas about a show we've already done, send us an email. .net rocks at franklins.net. And Richard, you see that link I just sent you? Yes. What is the Jesus Christ? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's Andrew Parsons, man. Nice. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Who knew Down Under was quite that Down Under? Oh, uh, I will introduce you guys formally here, but I just showed Richard the avatar that Andrew just sent me. Andrew, that is ridiculous, man. <laughs> is that half you and half makeup or, or digital? No, what is it? That's, that's me and a very talented uh, student uh, that... Uh, you Loves Photoshop. There you go. That's some serious Photoshop work. That's that, what is that is serious. Well, uh, let me introduce you guys proper. Uh, Andrew Parsons is the academic developer evangelist for New York State. That means he gets paid to travel around talking to college students about how to do cool stuff like make games for the Xbox 360 and Windows Phone 7 and tell them about how they can get software for free as well as getting involved in the premier technology competition for students, which we'll talk about. He says it's not a bad job at all, and in a previous life, he did the same thing for Microsoft Australia. Think much bigger scale physically and much smaller in terms of number of people to talk to. And has been a journalist, author, programmer, and more over the course of 20 years in the industry. Welcome, Andrew. Hey, how you doing? And Alfred Thompson is the K-12 Computer Science Academic Relations Manager for Microsoft, where he has worked for the last seven years. Prior to that, Alfred was a high school computer science teacher and school-wide technology coordinator. He's also taught grades K-8 through as a computer specialist. Before teaching, Alfred was a software developer for 18 years. In his current role, he is a frequent speaker at conferences and an advisor on computer science curriculum. He maintains a computer science education blog at blogs.msdn.com slash B slash Alfred TH. Welcome, Alfred. Hi. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And uh, 
I'm glad we could all make it. I know the weather is challenging, and um, we uh, we have a lot to talk about. Um, education. Uh, this topic came up with me just a couple of days ago. My uh, my girlfriend has a, a 14-year-old daughter who's sort of, you know, in that classic um, education slump, you know, not really, you know, she's got the, the whole uh, modern brain of discovery and learning by discovery and just school is not working for her, but she's a bright kid and um, trying to get her interested in, in computer stuff. So I made a deal with her. She wants an iPhone, you know? So I made a deal with her that I'd get her an iPhone if she took a class in some kind of computer science uh, programming, that kind of thing. So then the question became, well, where can she take a class? She's 14. They're not offering anything decent in school. And, um, there, you know, there's essentially like new horizons, places like that, but she'll be lost in a something there. She needs us definitely something geared towards kids. There's a lot of stuff on the web, but there's no testing uh, or any kind of, I couldn't find anything that has both really good teaching materials and testing, like do something that some can be evaluated by somebody. So what is a what is a kid to do if they're interested in doing something or, or what's a parent to do if they're interested in getting their kids into programming or technology and yet uh, there doesn't seem to be or, or at least they can't find any good resources? Well, Microsoft actually has a, a website called the Beginning Developer Learning Center, uh, which has a special kids page with actually a lot of resources for kids uh, to learn on their own or for teachers or homeschooling parents to work with. Uh, everything from uh, web design to uh, game design and uh, our small basic language and visual basic C-sharp. I mean, there's, there's really a whole range of tools available for Microsoft. Uh, and to go with that, then we have the DreamSpark program, which allows students to get professional development software for free. So there's videos that I see that will get a kid interested. Um, is there any kind of way to for the for the for kids to actually do projects along with those videos and for them to be evaluated? That that tends to be a little bit harder. Um, and we do have some new certifications, uh, uh, MTA certifications, which are sort of. Uh, um, I don't want to call them pre-professional because they're not really pre-professional, but they're not at the same level as the, the usual, um, you know, Microsoft certifications. Um, a, an outside option also that's worth looking at for a lot of parents is uh, virtual high schools. Um, most states, well, a lot of states are, are developing these. Uh, the Florida Virtual School, which Microsoft partners with on a number of things, is sort of the the, the grandfather of them all. Uh, but a lot of these virtual high schools will handle students from their own state uh, for free, and uh, from other states, I think, generally for a modest fee. And it's basically taking a course online. So uh, this is an option for computer science for a lot of kids who don't have computer science at their own school. Huh. Which unfortunately is way too common. Yeah, I, I just typed in a little search into Bing for Connecticut. I found a site that's called Connecticut Virtual Learning, ctvirtuallearning.com. It's it's interesting. Online high school courses. Yeah, and a lot of these are, are either um, 
state-funded in fuller part and available to, to, to students from within the state for free. So it can be a great option for a lot of kids. Oh, that's great. And tell us about the DreamSpark program. So, so DreamSpark uh, really is available for, at two levels, one for university students and then one for uh, students primarily in high school. Um, the way it works for university students is students can sign up uh, using a validation process that involves their university email address. For high school students, what we do is we have a volunteer from the high school, usually a teacher, sometimes an administrator, who signs up for the program and gets a set of access keys that they can distribute to students at the high school. Hmm. That way, we, we basically put the, the matter of verifying the student status in the hands of somebody at a school, um, and we, you know, we avoid having a lot of unnecessarily uh, personally identifying information about minors, yeah, uh, which works out well for everybody because you know we're all concerned about about that. So anyway, they get this access code. They go to DreamSpark.com. Uh, they sign in with that access code, and then they can download uh, Visual Studio. They can download uh, Windows Server, uh, SQL Server, uh, the Expression uh, Studio products. Uh, small basic. I mean, the, the the list really fills up more than a full screen on the website. So yeah. it's just a phenomenal amount of software available for free. It's been my experience that there's always lots of resources available for kids, but you know, they too often they're left figuring stuff out by themselves, and that's where t- parents and teachers really need to help. Um, so many kids lack the basic skill to learn by themselves. You know. I can't tell you how many times we've sat at the dinner table and being bombarded with questions that can easily be asked by looking up on Google or Bing, you know. Right. Kids just don't think like that. And why not? Why aren't why aren't they being taught that in school? Basic search skills for information. Well, you know, the short answer is that at some schools they are. They are. Uh, my my wife is is a library media specialist, and she teaches that to students as young as sixth grade. Uh, but you know, she's a very internet savvy person with you know professional development experience. Yeah, uh, a lot of schools are really short on people who have that kind of knowledge. So, yeah. um, uh, you know, one of the things that a lot of of us have been trying to do is help teachers uh, in local schools learn how to use these tools. Uh, and, and share them. Um, you know, Microsoft just announced uh, this past week some two-day uh, professional development workshops for teachers that are going to cover a lot of things about integrating technology into the curriculum. Um, you know, so so we're we're trying, but it's it, it's a big problem because um, uh, teachers don't have time to learn this stuff. Yeah. on their own and if a teacher doesn't know how to do it then it, they very can't teach it to kids so uh, how many how many times have we run into a situation where the kid knows more about the computer than the teacher does yeah and i i also before we leave this topic um there the other problem of course that's more even more difficult to 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 cut through is just the whole social stigma around being smart you know why is it that uh kids like feel that if they admit they don't know something, then everybody will think they're stupid. Whereas 
that's the way you learn. And so it starts this vicious cycle of not learning and not wanting to learn. You yeah, know? I think uh, obviously that's been a problem. That's just part of society. That's not just... You know, that's modern. what I mean. Yeah, it's... <laughs> As a kid, you always didn't want to admit that you were you were out of the loop on anything. Especially high school kids. Oh my God! You know, you look at them cross-eyed and they think you're you're judging them. Yeah, yeah. Which is one of the reasons why the DreamSpark program actually is really cool. Um, as as Alfred was you know, listing out that that software, that's that's the core part of the DreamSpark program. But alongside that, we support it with uh, different kinds of training options that to suit different types of learning. So we've got a, a lot of uh, articles on there. Where we've actually got three categories, by reading, by doing, and by watching. So there's a lot of stuff where you can actually just click on a link and, and go and read up a bunch of articles about your technology or area. Uh, then all of the examples and labs and other bits and pieces you can get your hands on to actually do it yourself and practice yourself. Uh, and then videos as well. So if, if you're more a visual-spatial guy, you know, that's, that's where you can head there. Um, obviously, I agree with you. Um, you know, some some students actually do need that encouragement of having someone else who's been there and done that, and give, giving them a, a bit of guidance on, on along their way. Right. But you know, we're doing what we can with this particular program to to really sort of uh, give them that sort of jump start. Yeah. So let's get back to the stuff that we can actually change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the other thing that we're trying to do, and and one of the issues is these kids who, who do this learning on their own often don't have a chance to get recognized. Yeah. Um, so you know we're seeing uh, high school kids entering the Imagine Cup and achieving some good level of success and and getting some recognition. Uh, sometimes just at their local school level, but sometimes uh, broader level. Uh, we also have a web development competition for high school students called Blink, uh, Blink with two eyes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that gives kids a chance to, you know, create a web page, enter it in a contest, get some recognition, get some feedback, and, you know, have somebody say, hey, you're doing good stuff. And that can go a long way for kids. If you're like me, you're using Facebook on a daily basis. You also might want more control on what you're seeing and how you're seeing it. If that's the case for you, try FaceDeck. FaceDeck is a Silverlight-based client application for Facebook, now supported by Telerik. The product was formerly known as Microsoft Client for Facebook Beta. The news about Telerik taking over the application from Microsoft was announced by Scott Guthrie at his Firestarter event keynote. FaceDeck has a nice, elegant, black finish touch. You can upload photos with a simple drag-and-drop operation from your file system to your FaceDeck. You also have instant access to your webcam. What's more, FaceDeck will save you from notifications from unwanted applications. You only see what you care for. And of course, it's free. Try it at facedeck.telerik.com. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So that uh, Blink contest, has that yielded any... Um, Amazing things. Look, to, tell me about the success of that. Well, last year we ran it uh, locally in a couple of states. In fact, we did a, a Texas-wide event jointly with NASA, which uh, got a lot of kids interested in NASA and space exploration, and the winner got to have their page put up on the NASA website. Uh, this year we're running it nationally. Uh, there's still time to register. Um, I think registration closes on the 15th. 
but then your entries don't have to be in until I believe sometime in March. Um, so we're really kind of looking forward to what we see this year. We've got, you know, a thousand plus kids entered already or registered at least. And, uh, you know, we're hoping that they'll, they'll do some interesting, creative and, and maybe even educational projects. Uh, the artwork and creativity in the projects we saw last year was just mind-boggling. And this is specifically for teenagers. I'm looking at the rules here. It's between 13 and 19. Yep. That's cool. Yep. I did not know about this contest. Thanks for that, Alfred. That's a whole yeah. other layer of things that uh, folks could be doing. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, kids, a lot of kids are into web design, and if they can get some recognition for it, that's that's just icing on the cake. Sure. As uh, as quote unquote professionals in the development industry, how do we help solve this problem? Because I I'm really concerned about the fact that there's not enough new dev and IT folks coming out of the schools. Well, there's a, there's a number of ways. Um, in in the past two years, um, we, which means Microsoft, but a number of other both companies and nonprofit organizations, have been trying to promote computer science in the schools in a number of ways. One is there's a computing in the core project, and I, I believe it's computing in the core dot, um, I don't know, org or com, uh, which is a project to encourage states to give graduation credit uh, for computer science courses. There's also uh, in uh, the late fall, in early December, there's National Computer Science Education Week, which we could certainly use a lot more people knowing about. And what a lot of people have been doing uh, also is uh, volunteering to go talk to students in schools at career days and basically overcome some of the myths about computer science and software development. I mean, obviously, you guys understand that there's a lot of communication involved. There's a lot of community involved. You guys have been involved in the .NET community, for example. Uh, and, you know, it, it's a real you know, change the world kind of, of industry, and kids just don't know about that. And if we could open their eyes to that on career days on uh, and similar things, that would be a big help, I think. Certainly, it's been my experience. I, I fell into this by accident where uh, a friend of mine that had been doing the career day talks on computing, this is years ago now, said, hey, I can't do this. Would you do it? And uh, went in, talked to a group of kids, and got sucked into it. Now I do a half a dozen of them a year. A, I think it's really challenging speaking. You know, I think we get very spoiled when you're used to speaking to other developers where you've got a highly motivated audience. There is no tougher audience than a pack of teenagers. Holy yeah. cow. Like yeah. just trying to switch the light on. You've got to really work hard as a speaker. But at the same time, I've never run across a school that wasn't thrilled to have someone willing to volunteer their time to talk to their kids. Absolutely. Hmm. You have to go in with high energy and you have to make it exciting. Um, but if you get their attention and, you know, to see a kid's eyes light up and, and, and know that they're thinking, hey, maybe I could do that, that that's a really cool feeling. And just giving them a sense of how much work there is out there. I mean, we're still starved for people. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, even playing to their sense of uh you know you can actually make a lot of money doing this if you're good at it you know uh although it's i see that as sort of like the doctor lawyer agreement you know uh, uh, argument that you know well if you were a doctor you could make a lot of money and then they think okay well what is i what do i have to do to be a doctor oh 12 years of college 
No, you know. So uh, what I'm saying is that the they have no idea about the work that's involved and what it takes. And so uh, there tends to be, I think, a a mythos around what it takes to be a developer or a scientist or that kind of thing that works against us. And yes, it's movies and television. It really does work against us. Yeah, I think I think the media still portrays um, the typical IT person as being the cliched dork slash geek who yeah. lives in his mother's basement drinking coke and eating pizza all night and and being a night guy. Um, now maybe we're all on this particular call. <laughs> we are those kinds of people, but um, you know the variety of. of professions within IT, um, and I use profession very carefully because one of the things that, that being in the IT industry allows you to do is actually be a professional without some of the restrictions on some of the more typical professions. So you mentioned lawyer and doctor. Not only do they have, you know, say, 12 years of study to do, um, but they're often restricted to only working in the country that they actually qualify mm. in. And if they go to another country, for instance... They have to, uh, you know, maybe do some more qualification or even more study to actually right. be able to, to work there. Yeah. With IT, we don't have those boundaries. Right. So if you're a guy who can code in COBOL or C Sharp or, or Java, um, you can code in those languages regardless of where you are in the world. You can be in your, in your, in your house telecommuting. Yeah. Yeah you, yeah, you can telecommute around the world or you can actually physically relocate, you know, case in point. Right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things that allows you a flexibility of, of work style and lifestyle um, that a lot of uh, kids, as they're growing up, don't actually understand that, that, that that's a possibility for them with the IT industry. Is this when I mentioned that I'm, I'm sitting on the train heading south towards Florida as we speak? Yeah. <laughs> and I've got an internet connection and I'm, I'm doing business. I'd add one more thing I think that a lot of kids don't understand. Computer science is not in isolation these days. For almost everybody, it's computer science and. It's computer science and art. It's computer science and engineering. It's computer science and business. It's computer science and pretty much anything else they're interested in. Right. So it's it's, it's wide open. Right. You know, I, I went to the kids' corner here to look at some of these videos, and I had the sound off, arguably. But I, I have a real criticism, and I can't. I feel kind of uh, uh, sheepish about saying this after just watching, like you know, twenty seconds. But looking at the "What Are Objects" video with the sound off, um, you guys are using like flowcharts and and abstract boxes with the word "class" and "object" and stuff. And I'm I'm here to tell you, man, that's not what kids understand. They understand things in their world, and I think it's a huge failing on our part to try to explain stuff to kids as if they were, you know, as if they can abstract all that stuff, because they don't. They need real concrete examples and metaphors to drive these things home. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not just throwing stones here. I'm, I'm saying that everywhere when I see people talking to kids about technology, it's very, very soon that we're just their eyes are rolling back because we're we get so abstract they don't even know when you say 
ah, you know, what my program does is first I call, I make a connection to this. Right there, you've lost them. I make a connection. Does that mean me physically? No, I'm talking about my program. But if you can't communicate that, I mean, you have to completely change the way you talk to people about technology when you're talking to kids. It's very you, you challenging. You really do. And, and that's, that's something that in, in the education space people are starting to realize. You know, it's, it's not just a Microsoft thing. It's not just an industry thing. You know, we've, we've taught computer science and programming in a way that works with certain kinds of people, but not everybody. Um, and we really do, uh, you know, have, have, have to change the way we do things. And that's, that's something I struggle with, and a yeah. lot of people who, you know, are in the classroom on a regular basis are struggling with. Uh, and that, that may be part of the problem, that we're just not teaching computer science right at the early levels. Well, haven't we crossed a line recently here where they, the current generation of students now have lived their entire lives with PCs in the home and internet connections. Yeah. And they are natives to this. And we are the immigrants. We remember a time before. And we simply perceive things differently. Yeah, that is a problem. And, and like I say, people tend to teach things the way they learned them. Right. And, and, and we're really in the process. A lot of people, and I'm very involved in, in the Computer Science Teachers Association and uh, the uh, Computer Science Education Special Interest Group at, at uh, ICM, and, and a lot of people are looking at that. Okay, you know, this, the way we learn doesn't work. How do we, how do we change how we teach for today's kids? Uh, and some of it is tools, and, you know, we've got cooler tools, and we've made it easier to do graphics and sound and, and, and games with things like X and A, for example, and, and Silverlight. Uh, but yeah, we kind of have to work on the vocabulary for the teaching and the way we demo, demo things. And, um, it, it's a struggle, but I think people are starting to, to realize that we have to make a big change. Hmm. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only six ninety five. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy .NET Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Now, you've mentioned Imaginet, Alfred, and Andrew, you're actually working on Imaginet. Did you, you said before the show here you, you've done a couple of workshops recently? Yeah, Imagine Cup. So, Imagine um, Cup, sorry. Uh, Imagine Cup is you know, basically you know, the world's biggest uh, technology competition for students. Uh, you know, and it's open for students... Uh, age 16 and over, and that's why uh, Alfred sort of referred to, you know, as some some high school students actually entering and, and, and doing fairly well, actually, in some cases. But really, it's the college college students that, that it's predominantly for. Uh, it runs worldwide. It's now in its ninth year, uh, and we, we have the world finals in a different location every year as well. Uh, you know, some really pretty, pretty gorgeous places, uh, you know, Paris and... Uh, We've been in Poland and Egypt, although Egypt's maybe not so pretty at the moment. Right. Uh, uh, and uh, and this year, uh, for the first time in its nine-year history, it's going to be in the U.S. The World Finals, and we're going to have the World Finals here in New York City. So it's pretty exciting for students around the world to have this opportunity to to con- 
congregate around this one place yeah. and, uh, and explore technology. Um, in terms of what it is, uh, as I said, it's, it's the world's biggest technology competition. And what that means is we're basically challenging students to uh, use their creativity, their in- ingenuity, and their inventiveness to actually come up with solutions that are going to impact the world uh, with technology. So, you know, the DreamSpark and Imagine Cup programs go hand in hand. DreamSpark, we give them software for free and, and give them the access to the tools. Imagine Cup is the thing that we're giving them uh, incentive or inspiration to actually do something with those tools um, that, that betters not just their own lives, but, you know, p- perhaps other people's as well. Um, so it's a very socially responsible sort of uh, uh, theme uh, for, for the competition. Uh, and, you know, this year's theme, we've actually partnered with the UN's uh, Millennium Goals that they issued out to the world a few years ago now, where they said, right, these are the top eight things that are actually facing the world that we really need addressed. Uh, and, uh, you know, if anything can be done to fix these things, that, that would be awesome. And so we've actually said that's the theme for the, the competition. Now, these are big things. These are you know, things like poverty and hunger and equal education, gender mm-hmm. equality, the environment, mm-hmm. things that we can all instantly see, um, you know, maybe even our own little pieces of the world, whether, whether those things are actually happening. You know, here in New York City, there's, there's, there's homeless people, there's, there's people living below the poverty line. You know, obviously, we're, se- we're seeing a lot of weather stuff in, in terms of the environment at the moment around the world. Uh, cyclones and volcanoes and flooding and fires and <laughs> snowstorms, you know, even that is affecting our environment in some way. You know, are there solutions that help us technologically um, to be able to address those things or to be able to, uh, you know, handle those sort of situations better? So that's where Imagine Cup comes in. We say these are the sort of big, big ideas that, that are sort of, you know, needing to be addressed. Uh, can you guys as students come up with some ideas to address those things? And we allow them to do, you know, software design is a big one. If you win a software design Imagine Cup, you actually win the actual Imagine Cup trophy that the whole thing's named after. Wow. Uh, but then we have additional, you know, tracks of competition where we've got a game design where you, you get to, you know, build a game for the Xbox or the phone or for the web browser. We've got a digital media category where you, you know, create short films. Uh, IT challenge for the for the students that are more sysadmin, network admin minded. Uh, embedded challenge where we actually get them to uh, program against an embedded uh, chip programming board. Uh, and even that, as a, just as a, as a side note, so many students don't even realise that there's this whole separate world of programming against embedded chips. You know, we've got them right. in our microwave and fridges and phones and GPSs and everything else. You know, that's that's a whole very very cool place to play with IT. Uh, so, you know, with that, with that particular competition, we actually cull it down to the, you know, the top teams from around the world and actually send them the actual programming board uh, wherever they are in the world so they can actually code against the same, the same particular chip. So, you know, we have those competitions, we have the, that theme, uh, and basically we just sort of get these students involved. And for the last few years, we've actually had, you know, over 300,000 students registered to compete uh, worldwide, so you can get an idea of the scale as well. Um, and uh, you know, like I could probably go on for, for for a couple of days actually on on examples of of solutions that some of these students have come up with. Well, um, but you, you got to pull us out one of your favorite projects. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there's one in, uh, from last year that was especially cool because it was one of those why didn't I think of that and why hasn't someone else thought of that before now? 
where this team from New Zealand actually built a system to transmit data over AM radio. Huh. And, uh, you know, radio's been around for as long as we've all been alive. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and building your own codecs for the computing side has been around pretty much for as long as the internet's been around or longer. Yeah. So they've combined these two things to be able to, you know, compress data down and encode it in a particular way to be able to then transmit it over radio up to 400 miles uh, to, you know, receiving places. Now, the cool thing was they've actually found a need uh, in, in the education space uh, in third world countries like Rwanda, where these, Rwanda has all these outlying villages that are really remote that have actually received a lot of uh, donations like OLPCs. Right. And they actually have these pretty cool classrooms when you think about it, where, you know, often a whole classroom will be fitted out with OLPCs and will have a Wi-Fi network and everything. But once you get that gear out there, it's very hard to update. So, you know, you might have two guys in a truck drive around the entire country, pulling up outside each school, connecting to that school's Wi-Fi network, and, you know, beaming over the new educational materials or new data that needs to be there for that, for that, for that school. Right, right. Because uh, they, they don't, it's not like there's, there's not actually internet connections pulled out to each of these villages. Exactly. So they've, they've got the, the, the infrastructure, but not the communications. Right. So they have to do this kind of thing. This system effectively replaces that entire, you know, months and months of delay of getting the data out there because they can just go from a central broadcasting station and broadcast a signal over, uh, you know, uh, and, and broadcast it 400 miles out in a radius. So what they do is they have one PC in each classroom stay on overnight, and, you know, the government or, or the department, uh, you know, leases some time from the radio station at, say, 3 o'clock in the morning and transmits for an hour and, and transmits the data over the radio. Uh, that PC receives it, and then the next morning can then disseminate that update throughout the Wi-Fi network for the whole classroom. Oh, that's cool. So it's pretty cool, right? That's awesome. Uh, uh, very cool watching the progress as well. So when they originally did it, did their, their solution, their prototype, they were sending text, you know, effectively like SMS kind of stuff. Right. Uh, but as they went on, they were starting to send Word documents and things like that. And just before they hit the world finals, which happened to be in Poland last year, they actually had finally successfully sent a complete application over the over the radio as well, so that that's one small small solution that was a very very creative way of using stuff that's already out there. Uh, and as I said, why didn't we think of that before? Yeah, that's very awesome. So when's the next Imagine Cup? So the the competition runs July to July, um, and so the World Finals will be in New York City this July. So in a few months. But the, the key date um, is, is getting, getting your initial submission idea, your, your project idea, in. And for the U.S., that's February 15. That's, you know, two weeks away. Whoa. Um, and uh, that's, that's both the game design, which I look after worldwide, um, and software design. Uh, but as much as that sounds intimidating, two weeks, uh, that initial date, all we require from a, a team of students is a project plan, a one-page project plan showing us what idea they've got to actually you know, change the world. And for the game side, a storyboard, like you know, a couple of illustrations of what their game's going to look like, uh, you know, and, and that's it. And so it's, it's not as onerous or as burdensome as they may first see, uh, but it's just a matter of getting them over that hurdle of actually getting into the competition. 
Now, do um, you guys put together teams, individual people can come in, or do you have to put together your own team? The students tend to put together their own teams, depending on the school. Um, we certainly have teams that are actually made up of students from multiple schools, um, but usually students will sort of band together within their particular college or school. Um, some schools actually use Imagine Cup as, uh, as part of their curriculum. Nice. You know, maybe like a senior year project or you know, actual part of the social responsible um, you know, subject that a lot of them have. Um, uh, others don't have a formal sort of curriculum inclusion of Imagine Cup, but what they do do is um, they, they have a particular lecturer or a couple of uh, faculty people that are really keen on Imagine Cup, and so they will mentor and encourage students as much as possible to go into the competition. So in those particular places, you, you do get you know, students being formed into teams by the actual staff um, through either of those mechanisms. But usually, and, and this is the, the usual case, uh, pretty much worldwide, you'll find the students form their own teams. Um, but again, it's very easy. They register on the website individually. One of them creates a team and then invites the rest into that team and, and they're done. Um, the other thing I, I mentioned just then was uh, mentoring. And one key facet to, to this is having these students learn. Uh, and you'll find that when you get the feedback from the students that participate, the things that they valued out of the competition it's not the money, it's, it's the learning and it's the contact that they make uh, through the industry, whether, the, whether it be the media that showcases their stuff or professional industry or the, the charities they've made contacts with or even the academics from around the world that they may, may interact with. Sure. Um, but the learning part is a real big key for them. And for that, uh, we allow the students to, you know, they have a team of up to four students together working on it but we can, they can also invite someone as a mentor. Mm -hmm. uh, now, usually those mentors are academics, but we also look for professional developers to be mentors as well. So this is a call out to our listeners if you want to yeah, get involved. Yeah, it is. Do you, do you need mentors? Are you short? It, well, it depends on where you are in the country right. uh, and, and the world, actually. Uh, some, some places, yes, some places, no. And I, I don't have the numbers offhand, but we're always keen on finding mentors uh, and, and other ways that professional developers and, and IT professionals can be involved in this. Um, you know, we even sort of you know, recruit judges for, for interim rounds and, and the world finals uh, from the professional industry so that the students can have an interaction with, with that. Nice. Uh, so, yeah. Well, is there anything else that you guys want to talk about? I, I think we covered a lot, actually. Uh, you know, DreamSpark. Spark, uh, uh, Blink for the uh, Younger Students, Imagine Cup for high school through university. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've got some good stuff here, and uh, really looking forward to getting a lot more student involvement, a lot more uh, professionals involved uh, with mentoring students. Absolutely. Well, thank you guys for all your efforts and continued success, and keep us informed about, uh, about your successes. Yeah, well, one last thing, uh, what, just given the time, uh, at the moment, uh, one of the things I'm doing is running a couple of game camps uh, for students to learn how to do game development uh, mm -hmm. here in the New York uh, region. Uh, so, you know, please, you know, feel free to sort of check out my blog about that as well. Uh, you know, we're really, really keen on, on education, as you said before, uh, and, and that's one way to do it. Excellent. Well, thanks, guys. It's uh, been a real pleasure. Great. Thanks, you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Dotnet Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter van